0: If you'll turn with me this evening in your Bibles to First Chronicles chapter sixteen, as we continue our study through First Chronicles together, at this point, David has now assumed the throne over all of Israel. And as we saw last time together, David had it upon his heart as one of his first Acts as a new governmental leader not just to strengthen the economy or create a better military but David wanted to bring the presence and consciousness of God back to the center of the nation among the people and we saw that David did that by bringing the ark of the Lord uh, back to Jerusalem from where it had been so that it might again be at the center of the national life of the people and remember the ark was symbolic uh, to the people of God's presence and God's glory it wasn't where God God dwelt, but it was the place where God had promised to manifest His presence there on the mercy seat. And so the ark was a a pivotal piece of furniture among their worship life in, in the tabernacle. Ultimately, it will be there in the, the temple as well. And so David, knowing what the ark represented to the people, Went, and he's now brought the ark back to Jerusalem. We saw it last time as they were coming in, there was just this uh, great worship that was happening among the people. David was even appointing people to different roles of worship ministry. We saw the Levites he was appointing to be uh, singers, those who could play stringed instruments and play the cymbals. We saw in verse 22 of chapter 15 last time, a man named Chenaniah who was appointed to be the leader uh, of the Levites, particularly as the instructor in charge of music because he was skillful, and, and, and David himself just engaging in the worship as they're moving the ark back up. He's just leading the way as the national leader, remember, just in total humility and and just expressing his love and devotion for the Lord. And and David, in this manner, uh, to me, is just someone who my heart gravitates towards in the Word of God, in, in that he was just someone who not was just a passionate man, but his passion carried over in his, in his relationship towards God. Uh, he just is marked in the Word of God as a man uh, who just had a real passionate heart towards the Lord, a real tenderness, a worshipful spirit. It's David who writes all these wonderful Psalms and makes statements like, as the deer pants after the water, so my soul pants after you, O God, that my soul thirsts for God uh, in a dry and a weary land where there is no water. And David just had this this real sense of intimacy and, and love for the Lord, and again, didn't care about his a human image or those kind of a things. He just, in an unrestrained way, just had this real expression that would often come from his life and was a real worshiper of the Lord. And we see that carry on as we go on to chapter 16 and 17 now, as David continues with this emphasis in encouraging the people, exhorting them towards the worship of the Lord. So chapter 16 picks up in verse 1 by telling us they brought the ark of God, as we saw last time, back to Jerusalem and set it in the midst of the tabernacle, the tent-like structure there that David had erected for it, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. So as they bring the ark back up to the area of Jerusalem, David has erected this tent-like structure. At this time, remember, uh, for a season of time, the the actual tabernacle itself and all the other aspects of the tabernacle ministry and worship system, uh, the burnt, you know, uh, the the brazen altar and things like the uh, golden uh, lampstand and and the altar of incense. It seems that the the actual uh, tabernacle itself for a time was in Gibeon. Ultimately, it will be brought back to Jerusalem as well. David will kind of consolidate these things. But the first thing David did was erected this tent and brought the ark itself back at this point in time. Uh, so David here, as he brings the ark back again, wanting to initiate once again, Worship towards God, the sacrifices they were prescribed to give as acts of worship, it says here in verse 1 that the people offered burnt offerings and peace offerings there that day before God. Now remember, the burnt offering was basically the offering of consecration. In the burnt offering, they would take the animal, they would put it upon the the altar, and the entire animal itself, the entire uh, carcass of the animal, was completely consumed in the fire. And it was to be a picture, as the, the entire animal would be burnt, nothing of it would be spared for the worshiper to eat or for the priest. It was wholly given over to the Lord. It was to be a picture in their worship towards the Lord that, Lord, this is what we want. We're offering ourselves to you in total consecration. Lord, we want you to consume our entire life. We don't want any part of our life for ourselves. We want to give the entirety of who we are fully over to you. So it was kind of a a worship uh, intention of, of just wanting to fully consecrate yourself to God. That was the idea and expression to God in the burnt offering. And then the peace offerings, as we see in verse 1 there, these are what we often refer to as, as a fellowship offering, another type of offering they could give to God. And the peace offering or the fellowship offering, it was sort of the opposite in some ways. A portion of the animal was to be burnt in the fire, and then another portion of it, after it was uh, cooked, would then be given to the priests or the Levites, the ministers, those who were officiating in the offering. And also a portion of that was given to the worshiper themselves who brought their offering. And then it was actually eaten, like a communal meal, uh, and it was intended to be sort of a, a symbolic picture of that you are having fellowship with God, that you're having peaceful, meaningful, intimate fellowship with God, and it was sort of a, a indication, Lord, I just want to share a meal with you. I just want to spend time with you and, and enjoy uh, you and your presence. And so this is what the peace offering was representative of. So consecration to God, and you might say communion, with God there as they're bringing back the ark and verse 2 says and David when David excuse me had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings he then blessed the people in the name of the Lord and he distributed to everyone in Israel both man and woman to everyone a loaf of bread a piece of meat and a cake of raisins so Notice on the backside of a time of worship came David's heart as the king then being inclined to want to bless the people Uh, as they were blessing the Lord and worshiping the Lord. It's out of this time of worship and the experience of worship that David's heart is then moved as the king and as the ruler to want to bless the people. And I think two things there, just very beautifully seen in that, of course, David many a times is a picture to us of one greater than David, the son of David, Jesus Christ, and how he's not only just the king of Israel, but the the king over uh, all, ruling over all of us. And and I think many a times sort of the byproduct of worship and offering ourselves to the Lord uh, is that the Lord wants to bless that. And there's a blessing that comes as sort of a reciprocal benefit of spending time in worship. We don't worship the Lord to be blessed, uh, but when you worship King Jesus and you give yourself fully to him, you're never going to outgive the Lord. And the Bible says that when we draw near to God, he draws near to us. He's always responsive. And, and I think Jesus, as as king of kings, and when we enthrone him as the king of our lives, when we spend time with him and consecrate ourselves over to him, that he wants to bless us. And he wants to pour out his blessings in a responsive way upon our life, whether it's just blessing us with the joy of the Lord and the peace of his spirit or whether it's even in tangible and material ways. Uh, Beautiful to see David there says that he distributed to everyone, man and woman, a loaf of bread and a piece of meat. And that's pretty extravagant because meat was sort of a rarity uh, in the diet of people in these days. So it's a pretty extensive, generous contribution that David's making here as a king towards the people, Uh, and whether you see David there as a picture of of Jesus in his kingship or just the simple fact that it's very interesting to connect how after David himself spent time in worship, he then was able to be a blessing and wanted to be a blessing to other people. Uh, And his heart was inclined to want to bless others in his humanity after he spent time worshiping God. And I'll tell you something. uh, There is something indeed true about when you spend time in the presence of the Lord, and you worship the Lord, and you you just kind of offer praise and thanksgiving to the Lord, however that worship comes forth, there is something out of that where then your heart, my heart, it just tends to be more inclined to want to bless people around us you know when, when we neglect worshiping the Lord, we just tend to be let 's just be very candid, a little bit more selfish and rude and mean spirited and, and you know and, and less gracious and less generous. But when you spend time worshiping the Lord and and just lifting your heart towards him in song and praising him or prayer or whatever it may be, there's something about that that kind of causes your heart to be more inclined to what God's heart is like. And you want to bless people afterwards. You tend to just be a blessing in a greater way. And and here in a beautiful way, we see David now blessing the people as he sends them off after this time of great celebration and worship. Verse 4 says, And he appointed then some of the Levites... To minister before the ark of the Lord. So he now establishes some positions, specifically ordains certain men uh, to ministry there before the ark of the Lord, that they would regularly be there in ministry. This was their appointment. And notice they were to do three things, these Levites that he appointed to minister there at the ark. They were to commemorate, number one, that is to remember to reflect to continue to help the people to remember and reflect upon God they were to offer thanks so they were to lead the people in ways of gratitude and expressions of thanksgiving to God and also in just praise to the Lord that is just directing people into the worship of the Lord and leading praise and so this was just their their regular job their appointed responsibility these levites verse 5 then goes on to explain some of those who had this assignment? Verse 5 says Asaph, the chief, was there, and next to him, Zechariah, and then Jael, and Shemaramoth, and Jehiel, and Mathaniah, and Eliab, and Benaniah, and Obed Edom. Now it's interesting, Obed Edom, remember, that's where the ark was for a time. Remember the, the ark was brought to the house of Obed-Edom when David tried to bring the ark up the first time and things didn't go too well because the way they went about it. So they brought the ark to the house of Obed-Edom and it says the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom. And I think Obed-Edom, no doubt, uh, probably recognized, hey, one thing I've come to figure out, when that ark was with me and the presence of God was in the midst of our home, our home was blessed, uh, so whatever I can do to stay near to the presence of God, I, I, I want to be there. And so here, interesting, we see Obed-Edom uh, there as a part of this appointment of the different ministers. And J.L. with stringed instruments and harps, but Asaph made music with cymbals. So again, we see the different types of Instruments uh, that the Lord was using to allow himself to be worshipped, stringed instruments and harps and cymbals, that is percussion, things that make noise in that manner, all pleasing to the Lord when they're done in a God-inspired way. And Benaniah and Jehaziel, the priests, they regularly blew the trumpets. So there's wind instruments before the ark of the covenant of God. And on that day, verse 7, David first delivered this psalm into the hand of Asaph and his brethren to thank the Lord. Now, as we come to verse 8, and it runs all the way down to verse 36, uh, we're told that this is a psalm that David gave to Asaph, to the chief musician, you might say the worship leader. Uh, So David here says, look, I, I want to give to you a psalm, or what we might refer to as a song. Again, remember the psalms, the book of psalms we have in our Bible is basically a Hebrew hymnal. They were poetry, but they also were set to music. And and many of the psalms would be used to sing and to offer praise to the Lord. There were melodies to them and ways they would use them melodically to worship and sing to the Lord. Uh, And so David here uh, turns this psalm over. It seems that David penned uh, this psalm. So David was a songwriter. We know, remember from 2 Samuel, that one of the titles attached to David's name that he particularly took to himself was he called himself the sweet psalmist of israel and to me i've always loved that because not only is that a description of who david was he was a songwriter he inspired by the lord at times to write out songs and expressions of praise to the lord but david at the end of his life could have called himself david the king of israel he could have called himself david the giant slayer i mean that was a pretty impressive thing that he did David, the successful military general. I mean, all these titles David could have took to himself, and David said, do you know what I want to be known as? Just the sweet psalmist of Israel. He says, you know what matters to me more than anything is is I want to be known as somebody who was a worshiper of God. And if people remember anything about me, he says, I don't care if they remember that I was a king or a leader or I fought battles. Right? He says, you know what I hope people remember about me? Man, that guy, he loved to worship God. He, he just loved to worship the Lord and to lead other people into the worship of the Lord. And so here's one of the psalms that David wrote and he turns over to Asaph and to the brethren to use in thanking the Lord. And you'll see this same psalm uh, show up, parts of it anyway, in Psalm 105, Psalm 96. Uh, it seems here that it was probably composed initially and then later kind of put together as a part of the psalms at a later point. So here's this Psalm, this song, if you would, that David turns over, that he had written out for them to use. And notice it just gives exhortations to the people to worship. That's what David's doing here as we read through this. He's basically exhorting the people, listen, worship God. Worship God. Praise the Lord. Notice how he begins verse 8. And again, these aren't just statements written out in a psalm. These are injunctions that we should take to ourselves and act upon. He says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. That's always a good thing to do. You know, oftentimes, oh, we complain a lot before the Lord Lord, why isn't it going this way? Or why didn't that happen? Or how come it's still like this? Or why is this going on? And, and right? I mean, we're very skilled at that. We're very skilled at identifying everything that we're upset about, disappointed with, not thankful about, wish was different, that we don't have yet. And the reality is is all throughout the word of God, we are encouraged to be thankful in heart. And notice the very first thing, right out of the gate here, you know, oh, give thanks to the Lord. Now, I'm saying we can't express those other things in honesty and sincerity before the Lord. But but how wonderful it is when we can begin by just giving thanks to the Lord, being thankful for what God does mean in our life and who he is to us and what good things he has done in our life, what he has accomplished, what he has provided, what he has made available to us. Lord, thank you that I do have a job instead of, Lord, why do I have this job? Lord, thank you that I do have a job. I thank you that I have a source of income. Lord, thank you that, that I do have a vehicle, that I'm not having to walk everywhere and take an Uber ride everywhere. Lord, thank you, Lord. Thank you that I actually have a car rather than, why I got this car? I'm always breaking down. <laughs> right. Lord, thank you that I have a car. Thank you that I got clean water, that I have plumbing. Lord, thank you that I have heat and air conditioning in my home. Lord, thank you that, that I have a family with some level of health. And, and just to be able to begin thanking the Lord, for the many things that we could thank him for. And I'll tell you, when we do that first, do you know what that does? That kind of, that sets the tone in our mind and our heart where then we don't a lot of times focus on all the other stuff as much. And it really causes our heart to be in tune towards the Lord. And again, Paul says in the New Testament that, that this is part of the will of God. He tells the Thessalonians, rejoice always, give thanks in everything. He says, pray without ceasing for this is the will of God. For you in Christ Jesus only a few places in the Bible where it actually says specifically this is the will of God one of the places it says that is in regards to rejoicing and just giving thanks so I don't know what God's will is for my life well just thank God every day and, and you're actually doing God's will and you can know in one way you're doing God's will and sometimes I found that the way to discover God's unrevealed will is to start doing his revealed will first. And it's amazing how as you start doing that and you do God's revealed will, that the unrevealed will kind of just becomes more clear, revelation is given. So again, these aren't just words, these are things we're to actually act upon. So give thanks to the Lord and then call upon his name. That is, call out to the Lord. Lord, I'm calling upon you, I don't know how to fix this, I don't know what to do here. Lord, I can't handle this. Lord, I can't... Change this. I can't bring this to pass. Lord, I'm, I'm calling upon you. I need you to help in this situation. I need you to intervene, spare me, save me, provide for me, Lord. Call upon his name. Look to him. You know, it's much better to call upon his name than to call upon the bank or to call upon a friend or to call upon, you know, we call upon all kinds of other things. And we call upon everything and everyone else. And I, I tell you something, there's something really wonderful when at times we can, you know, almost regulate our fleshly propensity to want to reach out to others or reach out to all these other things at times to solve a problem, the fiction issue, to try and make something go a certain way. And when you actually force yourself, and I I actually have to kind of force myself sometimes to actually say, I am just totally going to call upon the name of the Lord and in faith give God a chance to do something. And you never get a chance to really see God do that until you actually try it one time. (laughs) Until you actually say, you know what, Lord, I'm I'm actually just of this sounds crazy for a Christian, but I'm actually just going to pray. I mean, it's almost like if you ask another Christian for a counselor, well, you mean, yeah, you're going to pray, but did you and are you going to and and well, yeah, I'm just going to pray. I'm just going to call upon the name of the Lord the same way I did to be saved eternally from my sin. I'm just going to call upon the name of the Lord and give God a chance to show he's God, a chance to show his power and, and see what he might do. Because see, if you do that, look, verse 8, then you, can, then you can employ verse 8, the last part of it, make known his deeds among the people. That is, then you can tell people what God did. You can tell people about situations where, you know what, I actually called upon the name of the Lord. And do you know what he did? He he provided, and you could tell this crazy testimony of God's provision and how it came to pass and what the Lord did or how God moved in a powerful way in some situation or circumstance. And you actually have then stories to be able to brag on God about and actually make known to people his deeds, what he did in your life, or in your family, or in some situation. Verse 9, he then says, sing to him, sing psalms to him. Notice again, he doesn't just say sing, and he doesn't just say sing about him. You see what the Bible says there? That we are to sing to him. That is the purpose of why we are commanded, and I emphasize the word commanded, by God to sing, is that we are to sing to him. It's something that God has given to us by the way He's created us as a way to express worship towards Him, to give praise to Him, to express our thanksgiving, our love towards God, our devotion, our our commitment, our willingness to surrender to Him and submit to Him, to just be astonished by His greatness. And, And the way it's done is, we're told, sing to Him. So therefore, it doesn't matter, again, I've said this before, it doesn't matter what I sound like. Doesn't matter whether I like to sing or not, right? I mean, what other command of the Bible do you look and say? Well, I mean, I know it says that, but I mean, I know. Wait, maybe an yeah. example. I know it says there in First Thessalonians four, you know, that that we're to abstain from sexual immorality, but but I don't, I don't feel like doing that, right? I mean, that, that sounds ludicrous, but I don't feel like doing that. I, just, I feel like engaging in, in sex outside of marriage. It's just what I feel like doing. Now, is that, is, is that appropriate? Of course not. It doesn't matter how I feel. What matters is what's God's word say. We obey the word of God because it's what it tells us to do. And so that translates to every single command in the Bible. So a lot of times it's a really sad thing, and we're robbing ourselves, and more than that, we're robbing God of glory, worship, and praise by not singing to Him, if for whatever reason we justify and well, I, just, I just I don't do that part, you know I don't, I don't do the singing thing. I show up for the Bible study, or I just, but I'm just not into the singing thing. Well, God's into the singing thing. Always remember that it's not about you; it really isn't. And I don't say this to give you a hard time. I say this because I love God enough that I protect His honor, even if it steps on your toes. It's about singing to Him. He wants to hear us sing to him. It's something that pleases him. That's, again, maybe it's because he realizes how much it causes us to humble ourselves, maybe to sing to him. And God said, I love that. There you go. Now they're humbling themselves. They're singing to me, even though they sound like a dead frog. But, but praise the Lord. You know, man, I mean, for him to sing to me, woo! Yeah, I know he must love me. Or I know she must love to me. You know, and, and the Lord gives us this way of doing it. And even interesting, sing psalms to him. That means, look, and I encourage you to do this once in a while. When you're reading through the Psalms, and maybe you might want to do it when no one's around, during your personal devotional time out in the woods seven miles away, take one of the Psalms and try singing it. Now, some of them we know well, like, right, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. We kind of... But seriously, take a Psalm sometime, and I've done this before, and, and just try and sing it to the Lord. And, and, and just... See, let the expressions come forth as you kind of share it. He says, Sing psalms to him and talk of his wondrous works. Again, there, notice, just, we talk about so many other things. He says, Talk about the wondrous works of God. That's a great subject to spend some time talking about. You know, would to God we do that a little bit more around the church and in our conversations or after church or even in our job places and what we do. Verse 10, he says, Glory in his holy name. And let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Notice, as you seek the Lord, he says it causes the heart to have a reason to rejoice because you can always rejoice in the Lord. Even if you can't rejoice in circumstances or anything else, you can always find a reason to rejoice in the Lord himself. Verse 11, he then commands us, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face evermore. So notice, pursuing the Lord. To seek the Lord in the same way you would pursue someone, maybe that you're interested in a relationship, right? You, you pursue some gal or, you know, you pursue some, you know, situation or relationship, something you're interested in. Well, the Bible says, look, we should be pursuing the Lord. We should be seeking the Lord, just like we would seek after, a, you know, something else that we're interested in. Certainly, we should be interested in the Lord, We should be seeking the Lord through prayer and and pursuing Him in our lives, making that effort. And he says, if nothing else, seek Him and seek His strength. In other words, if you can't find any reason to seek the Lord, may it just be the the recognition, I am so weak as a person. If I don't seek the Lord for His strength, I don't know how I'm going to make it. Because I'm a complete weakling. And I don't have the capacity within me to live in a way that's pleasing to God. I don't have the strength within me to overcome sin and temptation that battles against me, the fleshly lusts that war against mine and your soul every day of our lives. Lord, I don't have the, the strength within me to be the husband that I'm supposed to be or to be the father I'm supposed to be. Lord, I don't have the strength within me to handle stresses and problems, right, in challenges and financial responsibilities. Lord, I need your strength. And so look, if if nothing else, we, we should seek the Lord that we might seek him for his strength in our life. And then he says as well to seek his face forevermore. And again, the face of a person is a representative of who they are, their identity. And so we always shouldn't just seek God's hand, what God can do for us. To seek the face of the Lord evermore implies that we're seeking him to know him. And let me just say, we shouldn't just seek God alone for what he can do for us. Nothing wrong with that. The Bible tells us that Jesus said that we should pray, give us this day our daily bread. Nothing wrong with the seek the Lord for strength and provision and help. But may we never stop seeking his face. That is seeking him because, Lord, I just want to know you. When, you. when you get close to somebody's face, you, you, the idea is you're, you're getting to know them better. It's It's intimacy. You look into somebody's eyes, and again, that we want to seek the face of the Lord. Lord, I just want to know you and who you are in a more personal and deep way. He says, verse 12, remember his marvelous works, which he has done. Certainly a great thing to always do. Just ponder, reflect back. One of the greatest ways we can remember his marvelous works, you and I now, is through communion. Jesus said, when you do this, do it in remembrance of me. And when we partake of communion, the bread and the cup, we're remembering one of the most marvelous works that God has ever done. That is the work of providing salvation through Jesus, his suffering and shed blood on the cross. Remember his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O seed of Israel, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones. David goes on, verse 14, he is the Lord, our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant, he says, forever. The word which he commanded for a thousand generations, that is a perpetual covenant covenant through generation after generation, and then he mentions specifically what he means, verse 16. This would be important to the people of Israel. The covenant which he made with Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, and then his oath to Isaac, Abraham's son, who was the next chosen descendant. It was reaffirmed to Isaac, the same covenant, And then he confirmed it again to Jacob for a statute. The idea is that the covenant never changed. Generation after generation, God's promise remained. God makes a covenant. He never breaks his covenant or promise because he's not like a human being. He's a faithful covenant-keeping God. And what was that covenant? Verse 17, to Israel, specific covenant, to Israel for an everlasting covenant. That means it does not change that, that, that Middle East negotiations do not change it. It's an everlasting covenant. It's a covenant God made, God established, and it does not matter what political rulers get together and talk about whatever plans. It's an everlasting covenant, and what is it? God said to Israel, to you I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance when you were few in number, God says, indeed, very few and strangers in it. Remember, in Genesis chapter 12, God promised a covenant to Abraham and it has passed through the generations, through Isaac, through Jacob, through the people of Israel, Jews, God's chosen people, that God gave the land there of Canaan, what we know as of Palestine, the land of Israel. To the people Israel to them as a nation remember the Bible says that God declares the world is mine God owns everything <laughs> God created the globe he owns every piece of dirt every sea every body of water so if you own something you have the right as the owner correct to determine who you're gonna give it to and by divine decree by grace alone, God's sovereign choice, notice it says verse 19, when you're a few in number and, and, and strangers. In other words, it wasn't that, that there's was something that was special about Israel, that God, ch- God just chose them, and for his divine sovereign purposes, he gave the land to the descendants of Abraham, to the Jews, to the people of Israel. God gave them that land. And so if God gave them that land, it doesn't matter what people have tried to do through wars and negotiations in history, the land belongs to the people of Israel because God gave it to them. And, and if God gave it to them, he can give it as a tenant to whoever he wants. And it's so important that we remember this. There's a divine decree of who that land belongs to. Can I say something? No other land on this earth is spoken for in that way. You can't find anywhere in the Bible that God says that he gave to us where we live in the United States of America to Americans. (laughs) It doesn't exist. But there is one piece of land that God said as the creator and controller of all the globe and the universe, that piece of land I gave as an everlasting covenant to a specific group of people, to the people of Israel. So again, just very important that we understand, you know, just how clear the word of God is in regards to these things. And what great help it would be to many politicians if they would read their Bible and perhaps not listen to the opinions of so many others instead. Verse 20 says, And when they went from one nation to another, that is, they traveled around through history, and from one kingdom to another as they were moving around, God, notice, verse 21, permitted no man to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sakes, saying, do not touch my anointed one and do my prophets no harm. So David there speaks of the the protection that God brought to the people of Israel, to to his chosen people to God's people there was, there was a measure of preservation that God brought to them from Abraham and all the way down through the generations as they traveled through the wilderness as they journeyed along all those different times as they passed different nations from one location to another all the way from the days of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and remember Abraham made his little oopsie and went down into Egypt and he told his wife Sarah look you're a beautiful woman so just say you're my sister lest they kill me And so in his self-preservation, he did that. And then Sarah was taken as a beautiful woman, and God had to rebuke Pharaoh. And he said, what are you doing? That's someone else's wife there. And God rebuked Pharaoh. But what was God doing? God was protecting Abraham. And then Abraham repeats the same thing in Genesis chapter 20 with Abimelech. And again, God intervenes, and he says, look, stay away, you know, don't mess with them, that, this, this man is a prophet, he'll pray for you. And, and again, God continually protecting, and the same pattern. It wasn't even just that they had to do everything right, even when they were doing things wrong. God was protecting them and preserving them and shielding them and making sure that, that he permitted no man to do them wrong. And look, the wonderful thing is the Bible tells us that God changes not. God loves you just as much. And if God would do that for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the people of Israel, God's hand of protection and preservation is just as much available to you and I. And do you want to know reasons why I feel confident in that? Because God's given us a covenant too. In fact, it's actually probably to some degrees, in some ways you might say a better covenant. It's called the new covenant that Jesus instituted for us through his blood. He said, you know, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. And as blood-bought people of the Lord, as his chosen spiritual children, as children of God, the Lord protects us too. And what a wonderful thing to know that as we journey through this life, how many times has the Lord intervened to protect, to shield us, and maybe somebody was trying to do us wrong, and the Lord didn't permit them to do us wrong. And how amazing God can be like that maybe it's a job situation somebody or maybe it's a family matter or just and god puts his hand and and people will try and do hurtful harmful things but god somehow lovingly protects so that he permits them to do us no wrong and he just kind of shields us and intervenes to protect us as his children and what a wonderful thing to have that assurance god you're my protector you're my defender in that way so therefore again verse 23 david goes back to Exhort In light of these things, he says, look, if I haven't given you enough reason yet, sing to the Lord, all the earth. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory, he says, among the nations, his wonders among the peoples. That is speak of, of God's greatness, his glory, the, the wonderful things that he's done. He says, verse 25, for the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people, they're, they're idols, that is, they're useless, worthless things that so many people spend time worshiping and so much devotion to. But he says, verse 26, but the Lord made the heavens. Our God is a creator God, a powerful God, a God who's actually done beneficial things for us. Therefore, verse 27, he says, honor and majesty are before him, strength and gladness Are in his place. You know, I've always loved that phrase there, verse 25: For the Lord is great and therefore greatly to be praised. You know, uh, Psalm 145 just speaks all about the greatness of God. And again, just a good reminder that the reason the Lord is so greatly to be praised is he's just great (laughs) in a lot of different ways, he's just really great. Who he is and what he does for us, you know, always, as I said, gives us a reason to worship him, to praise him. And again, uh, all the other things that people, in a sense, devote their worship and their adoration and their dedication to, the worthless, useless idols of this world, so often disappoint so easily. And look, the reality is, you know as well as I do, whether it's before we came to the Lord or, or, you know, maybe even struggles with our devotion, uh, you know, and allegiance at seasons in our walk with the Lord, uh, or wherever it may be, everybody worships something. By nature, we are created by God to be worshipful. We have this inward need to worship. It's just part of the way God has designed us by nature, and that's intended to be so that we would reach out and worship and find that fulfillment and proper expression towards God as our creator and that we would give him the praise that he's worthy of but the reality is to what extent a person does not praise god they will give their praise worship allegiance devotions their primary affection to something else or to someone else uh, and and what a an important thing to remember That you can give your attention to something else or your devotion to someone else, but like a worthless, useless idol, you'll find it disappoints, it becomes empty, it's unfulfilling, it ultimately frustrates, but that will never happen if you make the master passion and primary devotion of your life and allegiance God. Because God's great. And there will always be great reasons to praise him because of who he is. So that's why verse 28, look what he then says. Look at the repeated refrains. Give to the Lord, he says, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. You notice the repeated refrain there, verse 28 and 29, three times he says what? Give to the Lord. Give to the Lord. It's a choice to give somebody something, right? To give to somebody whatever you would choose to give. That, that's a decision. It's a volitional act to say, I'm going to give something to someone rather than withhold something from someone, right? You give someone your attention. The idea is that you're, you're not withholding your attention from them. You give to someone help or you give to someone your time rather than withholding your time, well, look, the same applies in our relationship towards the Lord. He says, give to the Lord, and what does the Lord want? Your money, right? I mean, that's what the televangelists would make us think. If you just give to the Lord, sow your, and, right, and, and you sow your seed, and, you, and, and the, the impression most people think is when we hear the word give, what God wants is give of your wallet, and God says, no, don't open your wallet, open your heart. Give to the Lord, he says, the glory due his name. Man, there's a little verse, verse 29, the first part of it, that's worthy of of memorization. Three times he says, give to the Lord, give to the Lord, but but the key, give to the Lord the glory due his name. Do, Do you see what that's indicating? In the same way let's say somebody who's you know, a king and you get the opportunity to approach and be in the presence of a king or a queen or some person that's an important individual or ruler. And so it's, I don't even know what the term is because I've never been around somebody that important, but I guess you know protocol or whatever you do, you go and you do a little bow or a curtsy thing or something like that, or you just, you're supposed to behave a certain way. I don't even know what that's called, the manners. You understand the concept. And you're supposed to do that because of who they are. They're due that kind of reverence or due that kind of respect because of who they are. Well, look, the Bible saying, give to the Lord, King of kings, Lord of lords, the great I am, all of who he is in his greatness, give to the Lord the glory due his name. He is due glory. He deserves glory. The idea is, is we have an obligation, really, we have a debt that we owe to God, and that's to give him glory. It's what he wants from us that we would give that to him, that that's what matters to him and pleases him. He says, verse 29 going on, bring an offering and come before him. Oh, worship the Lord in beauty of holiness. So again, even bringing an offering as well, that would be something of personal cost. An offering would cost you personally. So again, as we worship, it's okay. There should be some sacrifice. There should be some measure of personal cost to come and worship the Lord. And I love he says, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And I don't know, again, is that an implication that there's something beautiful about our holiness as we worship the Lord? Maybe. Or is it just that there is something that is beautiful about the holiness of the Lord and when you worship him and you discover that? I think both in some ways could be implied there. You know, I'm not 100% certain. You know, is it that when we worship the Lord, there's something beautiful when we come to Him with a life that's set apart and holy and, and dedicated to Him? That's what holiness means, to be set apart. Or is the idea there, worship the Lord in the beauty of His holiness where, and, and I hope you can relate and have experienced this certainly before in a worship meeting or in your own personal time alone with the Lord, maybe just in a quiet place, where as you just begin to worship the Lord, there's just something about God that's so amazing that the beauty, and you actually like, Lord, this is so beautiful. This is just so tranquil, so wonderful, so amazing. There's something so beautiful about the Lord and his holiness and just who he is that in that moment experientially, there's something so incredible. This is the most beautiful, incredible experience I've ever had in my life Lord just worshiping you and experiencing your presence and you know just to think that's what we're going to do for all of eternity for all of eternity and look eternal life the Bible says is already in us we already possess eternal life that's why there's something within us that is in some ways dissatisfied Except we're in those moments when we are fully engaged in worshiping the Lord because we're experiencing in this body of flesh what our spirit is going to do for all of eternity. Where we're just mesmerized forever and ever and we worship the Lord around the throne of God and there's this just complete fulfillment as we're in His holiness to the greatest degree. Verse 30 says, and tremble before Him. That is, have a reverence for God. Fear God. Because He's the God of all the earth and the world also is firmly established and it shall not be moved. Let the heavens rejoice and the earth be glad and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Boy, that's a good reminder. The Lord reigns. He rules over all ultimately. Let the sea roar. And all its fullness, let the fields rejoice and all that is in it. Then the trees of the woods shall rejoice before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. Again the idea of creation itself giving glory to God, the sea, the field, the trees, rejoicing before the Lord. If if creation understands God should be worshipped, as his creatures we should understand that as well. It is interesting in the midst of this that the Holy Spirit prompts David to say there, just at the end of verse 33, for he is coming to judge the earth. He's coming to judge this earth because of its fallen condition, the curse that this earth is under. And you know what? Uh, the reality is, you know, as we look around us more and more and more, how true that statement is becoming more and more real every single day that the Lord, the King of kings, the King of all glory, is coming again, and He is coming again to judge the earth. You know, the Bible tells us, as in the days of Noah, Jesus said, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. Look what kind of stuff was going on in the days of Noah. The perversion, the sexual distortion and confusion, the intense violence and just you know barbaric cruelty of humanity and look in our culture what it's marked by what it, you know what it's defined by you just go on a, something like a christian post or one of these you know you know news sites periodically and you just you read the headlines you know, just today, one of the you know headlines on, on Christian posts. You know, speaking of how a, a a father is potentially going to be arrested because he won't acknowledge the transgender desire of his fourteen-year-old daughter, and that she's been court ordered to have the opportunity to be able to receive testosterone to make her transition, and and the threat of the father who won't acknowledge this in his fourteen-year-old daughter from the court is that he is committing family violence because he won't call the child by the new name and the new gender pronoun and because he continues to refer to his child by the biological gender it received from birth and the name that he gave it as a father, which last I checked, that's what we're supposed to do, that he's potentially risking by the court system being arrested for family violence against his 14-year-old daughter. This is the insanity that we're living in. And you read articles of children already, already children as minors being taken away from their parents because their parents won't acknowledge their desire to gender transition. And the court is now stepping and saying, "You, you you are risking the welfare of that child so therefore, we have to take the child away from you. We have to give the child to a grandparent or to someone else because you are endangering that child by not acknowledging or supporting or approving for them to take you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, hormone repression drugs or, or to give them testosterone as a female to transition or estrogen as a male. I mean, this is the insanity, folks, that we're living in. I look at this kind of stuff and I just think, Lord, I mean, how much longer... Can you continue to restrain yourself? I mean, it's just so sad where we are pressing the limits in our our just confusion. And that's what it is, just utter confusion. And the things that we're doing, you know, barbarically, you know, attacking and harming and hurting. Just all the things. As in the days of Noah, the Bible says, so shall be in the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 34, he concludes saying, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his mercy endures forever, and say, save us, O God, of our salvation. That's a great thing to pray. (laughs) Gather us together, deliver us from the Gentiles, to give thanks to your holy name, to triumph in your praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people said, go ahead, you can say it, Amen. Amen. amen, and praised the Lord. I love the end of verse 35 there, to triumph in your praise. I have that underlined in my Bible there. What a great little statement to triumph in your praise. Is it not true there's something of, of you know being able to triumph in praising the Lord that you can feel so defeated and so discouraged and so overwhelmed and the only thing you can do to triumph over your feelings and your thoughts and the depression and the anxiety and the discouragement and the despair is, and I, you know, whether it's in the house of God, and quite frankly, at times I've just listened to music and put my head down on a radio years ago with just worship music, and you just start worshiping and praising the Lord, and somehow you triumph in praise. And you triumph over your depression or your suicidal thoughts or your discouragement or your despair, and you're able to triumph because you focus on the Lord and you praise the Lord, and your perspective becomes on bigger things and eternal things. And what a wonderful gift to be able to triumph. In praise. Let's just finish the remainder of the chapter quickly. Just says, so he left Asaph and his brothers there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister before the Ark regularly as every day's work required. And Obed-Edom with his 68 brethren, including Obed-Edom and Judithan and Hosah, who were the gatekeepers, and Zadok the priest and his brethren before the tabernacle of the Lord for the high place, as I mentioned earlier, notice was at Gibeon to offer burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar, the burnt offering regularly morning and evening. Again, Exodus 29 said they were to offer unto the Lord in worship. I love it, both morning and evening. Begin your day in worship to God, end your day thanking and worshiping God as you close it, according to what's written in the law of Moses. And with them was Heman and Judithon, the rest who were chosen, who were designated by name, again, and what were they designated by name to do? To give thanks to the Lord, because his mercy endures forever. And with them, Heman and Judithan, to sound aloud with the trumpets and cymbals and musical instruments of God. Again, notice, God says, these instruments, they're my musical instruments. I like that. God claims instruments. Don't ever let everybody, you oh, them drums, they're of the devil, man. That was kind of the thing years ago, you know using instruments. Oh, we only sing hymns, M instruments. No, God says, no, these are instruments of God. God's saying, I like music. I like singing, but God also apparently likes anointed music un- lifted unto him as well. Now, the sons of Judith were gatekeepers, and all the people departed, every man to his house, and David returned to bless his house. What, what a great exhortation and aim. David, after this time of worship and exhorting the people to worship, Having spent time with God and in worship, he returned to bless his house. You know, that should be our heart, to want to be able to bless our house, whatever our house involves, our household, to be a blessing. And you know one of the greatest ways you can become a blessing in your house? Worship God. You worship God and you'll bless your house in ways like you never have before. So let's stand, let's pray together.